Um, this is the Making It in Movie Making podcast uh, with me, Richard Fish, and today I'm speaking to Bob Jordan, filmmaker. So, um, Bob, where you at? Tell me what you do. <laughs> what do I do? I, um, I have a full-time job, which people are surprised about, considering the honest stuff I do in filmmaking. But I do have a full-time job, and people at work have this idea that I have a hobby making films. Well, in actual fact, um, the filmmaking probably takes more time than the full-time job. I've done lots of short films. I've done promos. I've done um, music videos. And recently we did a feature-length film and managed to pick up a distributor in LA. So uh, they're hoping to get that into distribution this year. And they're looking at potentially funding a sequel. Is that DVD, internet, theatrical? How's the distribution? Uh, it's probably going to be TV. Well, Because we, we did a feature and the original intention was that it was going to be a proof of concept. We're going to try and get it into the film festivals, but then use that as a way of raising money to do either a, a better version or do the sequel because the sequel is the real film. The film that we were doing was kind of a prequel to the main story. So what's, can you tell us the name of this film or do you have to protect it for the distribution and all that? <clears throat> no, that's okay. The film's called Remember, Remember, and it's um, an alternative history of Guy Fawkes. So the write-up that I did, the logline was, Guy Fawkes leads a dedicated team of hunters in an epic battle for survival against a vampire-infested aristocracy determined to seize the throne of 17th century England. The concept is quite simple. The concept is the aristocracy of England in the 17th century has been overrun by vampires. And the reason Guy Fawkes heads to London is he finds out that James, who's going to become the new King of England, is a vampire. So the whole gunpowder plot is about trying to stop the vampires taking over. I already like this because it's, it's obviously got several built-in audiences because like yes. low-budget low horror films and like horror aligned with the vampires you know already have an audience anyway plus you're going to have people who are interested in Guy Fawkes and because it's a historical figure you can use that as kind of a name to put to it um, now to keep, so, the, costs, to keep the costs down the actual gunpowder plot is film two the film that we're doing is the prequel to the gunpowder plot because not a lot of people realize that Guy Fawkes was actually from York so the film that we've done is about Guy Fawkes going around York hunting vampires. And the film ends with him discovering that the king is, a the future king is a vampire and heading to London. Tell me about the link for this project then. So we'll start with this, I guess, is this your most recent finished thing? This is the most recent finished thing, but it's with the, um, the Americans at the moment. They're going through post-production. Talk me through it then. So how long has it been since this was an idea to it, to where it is now? Um, that's a good question. It's probably getting on for four years. And is this, no, did no. you write this as well? Is this written, directed? Now, like what's, what's your this, involvement this one, and who have you got involved? Uh, my involvement in this is as a producer and as a director of photography. So basically I filmed it. Yeah. I do direct and I do um, write my own films, but this one was from somebody else's script. So how did you get involved in this then? So you were producing it. So is this someone else's script? So who is the driving force behind getting this made? Is it the writer or? Um... The writer wrote the script and he knows another person who runs Raven Wolf Cinematic Combat, Mark Heinemann Smith. He talked to Mark Heinemann Smith because he can supply the people to basically do the sword fights um, and a lot of the costuming. Um, Mark, who knows me, invited me on board as um, director of photography to actually get the thing filmed. Then we got a fourth person on board, John Addison, as um, assistant director. So Mark is directing. Alex, who wrote the film, is in the film as well, but he's the writer. John did the uh, initial edit, and I director of photography. 
And I was the one that actually took the film out to the States to find the distributor. And then, so through you, it's kind of getting bigger than what it was expected to be, I guess. Well, originally our intention was just to try and get this into film festivals and pick up interest in getting the money to do the second film. What we were expecting was that the Americans might be interested in trying to release the first film as is, but with a lot of post-production. So how long, I mean, you say if it's getting post-production now, you probably don't know exactly how long it is, but what's the kind of rough running time? Well, they started post-production last year and they were hopeful of doing one round of post-production and getting it to a level where it could potentially be released on TV on the 5th of November because obviously it's tied in with um, yeah. Night. Um Unfortunately, they didn't quite get the film up to the level of a TV release. So they've been doing more post-production, but unfortunately COVID's kind of um, yeah. knocked them back a bit. But yeah. they're now at the point where they're expecting to go back to the TV companies for a release this year. Yeah, I think it... November 5th matters less in the US because I think fewer people are familiar with it. In fact, like a lot of people think it's just a thing that was invented for Viva Vendetta, that it seems, that I've spoken to. Um, a lot of Americans only really know about Guy Fawkes through Viva Vendetta. That's what I'm saying, yeah. It's like, it's it's an unusual... Well, their, their core aim is to get it on the TV in the UK, potentially in Canada, because Canada, two provinces of Canada also celebrate Bonfire Night. Yeah. Um, and then from there, use that to sell it into other territories. But if they can get it onto TV, it makes it much easier to raise money for the sequel. And the sequel will have a budget uh, large enough for it to get a US release, regardless of whether people know who the character is. Yeah, because it's, it's basically, it's a low-budget film. And getting a low-budget film released in the States is not easy. And presumably not- this is without sort of known actors yes yeah so you've got a known actor it's much much easier but if yeah, you don't have a known actor and you're below a certain cutoff from a budget point of view it's very difficult to get release um so with it being set in york and obviously it's historical um did you film it in york and how did you manage the historical stuff you've said costumes but what about everything else <laughs> Um, costumes, we we made some, but we also were quite lucky with the um, sales. The um, Royal Shakespearean Company was having quite a few sales, so we bought stuff from them. We had a couple of uh, costume people on the team making costumes. Uh, we adapted stuff from other films, so we managed to keep the budget very, very low. Uh, for locations, we were very lucky. There's a... Um, uh, barn, well not really a barn, a warehouse in Selby that was built in the kind of 15th century and it's quite derelict inside and the people who own it have a gift shop on the front and they're trying to raise money to get the whole thing renovated. They let us film in there for about three months, completely free. Whoa. (laughs) And the whole warehouse is built up into separate rooms and what we could do is build a set in each room. Uh, which was great because to keep costs down, we were filming on weekends. So what we managed to do was to go film one weekend and then come back the next weekend and the set's still there. We don't need to take anything down or put anything up. Because they're not using it the rest of the time. Yeah. And it makes it easier to get around. Well, I guess most people's schedules, if they have normal jobs, they have Monday to Friday, don't they? So it's easier to get people involved. So remind me what this film's called the first one and also the second one uh the first one is remember remember we subtitled it uh, grace and mercy which is two of the characters in the film um the second film subtitle wise will be remember remember no mercy if you want to find out more about it you can go on facebook and go to facebook.com slash remember remember movie uh, on there, you'll find the trailer we made, which we took to the States, and also the trailer that the Americans have cut. Because they've cut a new trailer that puts a little bit more explanation in of who Guy Fox is. Yeah, tailoring to the audience. Yeah. Cool. I mean, that's exciting. So you've got that waiting for Have you had any other stuff um, 
released in that way before? Like stuff you've been involved with in TV or just generally? No, that's kind of the first scene. one. That's the first one that we've had that much success with. Well, that's definitely for me. Yeah. Um, I've got probably... I've got seven feature films planned, but a lot of them are different levels of budget. So it just depends on how much money I've got to do the next film. I was filming one film. Unfortunately, that's now on hold because of um, COVID. So we're about halfway through filming that. That's, um, I'm hopeful of finishing that next year. And have you found many, uh, I guess, creative things to work on during COVID? Because I mean, there's still obviously, if you had anything to edit or write in, or like, have you found creative outlets during lockdown? Or, I mean, I tried, I wrote a script that I hated and just kind of gave up. So I'm just wondering if you had any more luck. Uh, writings a great thing to do during the lockdown. Although I am uh, with the day job, I am working from home. Um, so it's like a 10 till 5.30. And then as soon as 5.30 comes, I'm editing and um, writing. We had one short film that we were about to shoot, but unfortunately two of the people were um, in the at-risk group for COVID. Oh, okay. So what we ended up doing was doing a new short film that's planned to become a feature. So we've shot the film. I'm editing the trailer for it at the moment. Uh, that's probably going to be run into about 20 minutes. But that's planned to work as a short film, but also to be um, a crowdfunder for a feature-length version. Have you got much experience crowdfunding? Because that's something that I've not really tried. I've been involved with other people's projects that have been crowdfunded, but I don't... I've never run a campaign, so I don't know. Like, Is that something you've done before? Is that... Um, I've helped with one short film which raised money to get made and helped with another. We, we actually did some crowdfunding for Remember Remember. We raised, um, I can't remember what it was, about seven, eight thousand pounds through wow. crowdfunding. So how does that, how does a crowdfunding campaign work? I mean, wh where do you find people, like how do you sell a film so people will invest in it? Like where do you find the people willing to throw the money at it? If you're crowdfunding through something like Indiegogo, the most important thing is visibility. And the most important thing on Indiegogo is to get to 20% of your target as quickly as possible. Because if you can get to more than 20% of your target, you're much, much more visible on the Indiegogo site. And if you don't, you're so far down the list of people trying to raise money that basically you're just getting money from friends and family. Is it possible to cheat that? Like, say, if I... I'm just asking so I can actually try this. Like, if I had an Indiegogo campaign, could I then give someone 20% of my target to donate, and it's actually just me donating to myself to make it look better? Or is that... Like... That's what everybody who's successful does. Okay, so, that's, so that is what I need to do. That's because I tried, I think it was either Indiegogo or Kickstarter ages and ages and ages ago. I'd written this science fiction script and I was like, oh yeah, no, here's, here's the book version. Um, don't look for it. There is a novel that I, uh, not a novel, a screenplay, full screenplay that I just took out on Amazon and never even tried to make the film. Um, but yeah, I tried to raise funding for that and didn't get anyone looking at it at all. So I feel like you've just given me a tip there. Um, cheat the they, system. What, yeah. <laughs> what you have to remember is um, Kickstarter and Indiegogo are very, very different in the way they give the money to you. So, so you have to decide so, on your project. So I don't even know about that. I thought they were roughly the same thing. No. The biggest difference between them is that for well, Kickstarter, if you say, I have a target of £10,000, you won't get a single penny unless you raise more than £10,000. With Indiegogo, if you say I have a target of £10,000 and you only raise £5,000, you get the £5,000. So what happens with Kickstarter? Do people get their money back or are they sort yeah, of... they basically yeah. get their money back. Wow. Now, that helps on Kickstarter because people want to back a successful project. Yeah? Yeah. So if you're saying you need £500,000 to make a film, People might think, well, if you only get £250,000, you're not going to make the film because you're not getting enough money. Maybe, or you'll make a, 
you'll make something, but it'll be a lesser product, right? Yeah. Now, if that's on Indiegogo, people might think, well, I don't want to put the money in because if you don't get to your target, you're taking money off me, but you're not actually going to make anything. Whereas on Kickstarter, people have got that protection. They'll think, well, you need £500,000 and you're not going to get a single penny unless you actually raise the whole £500,000. So oh, on Kickstarter, yeah. people are more likely to put the money in knowing that you actually are going to get the amount of money you need. What that tends to favour on Indiegogo is really small projects. If you're making a film and you say you need £500,000, people might think, well, £250,000 might not be enough to make the project because you've got, you know, um, named actors and things, you know, locations. Yeah. It's going to cut significantly into the project. If you go on Indiegogo and you say, I'm making a short film and I need £5,000, people might think, well, if you make £250,000, you're probably going to still make the short film. You know what I mean? You can slash your budgets and what you were making was not that um, that over the top anyway. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And it's, so it just comes down to like what sort of project you're trying to do at the time yeah. as to which one you would. Kickstarter favors hardware projects. Yeah. So it's like I've invented a new camera bag. Um, I've got a prototype and I've got a manufacturer lined up and they can make them if I can raise this much money. People think, right, well, I'll put money in because at the end of the day, I'll either get a camera bag or I'll get my money back. Indiegogo, you tend to work more on the incentives. So it's like, I'll sell a £10 uh, t-shirt for £20 with the name of the project on. People I've seen that a lot with film things as well, where you'll get like a uh, signed copy of the Blu-ray if you send us this much or like yeah. producer credit Indigo if you Indigo go for this one. All down to incentives. Yeah. Kickstarter, you tend to be selling the thing that you're actually going to make. Indiegogo, you're selling incentives at a slightly overflated, inflated price and using the extra money to go towards your project. Are you saying that, like, as somebody making a first feature, a small feature film, you're probably better off going with Indiegogo so you can get, I guess, more, like, more of a chance of it happening? Would, you've got more of a chance of it happening with Indiegogo. And also on Indiegogo, if the project looks like it's quite competent and it's high up in the rankings, you do get people that will just go and buy the t-shirts because they like unusual t-shirts. You know. But surely there's, there's not that much profit in t-shirts because, you know, things like Redbubble or wherever you're getting your t-shirts charge quite a bit to make them anyway. If you're getting them print on demand, yes. But if you're getting them printed in bulk in advance, then you can get the money, the price a lot cheaper. Did you have t-shirts on this and things on this uh, Remember Remember or is, is this... And Remember Remember we didn't. We more just went for the incentive of putting the money into the film because right. most of the crowdfunding went through family and friends. But um, if I was doing one again, I would probably definitely do t-shirts because it's a, it's a easy way of making money because if you can get say 20 people to buy a t-shirt you can get the cost down to around about six pound you sell the t-shirt for 20 pound you get 14 pounds per person per t-shirt a profit yeah and as, as i say if um if you're making a little film on through indiegogo and you sell 100 t-shirts you will get people that will buy those t-shirts thinking i'm going to be the only person that's wearing this t-shirt you know it's novelty value but also they'll think, well, if this person ever makes it and is successful, I've got one of only 100 T-shirts ever made for their first film. Yeah, exactly. All, all good points. And I think it's hard, um, like, at this level to think, like, like I, don't, I don't know if you struggle with this, but, you know, you'll have these ideas for features that are like, oh, but it's just self-doubt kicks in. It's like, oh, but can I do this? Can I do this? And then I end up just trying to do everything by myself for fear of feeling like I can't ask people. I don't know if that's particular to me but that definitely is something that holds me back. Um, I would say filmmaking is a team sport. You've got to get more people involved. You, unless it's a short film, it's very, very difficult to do it on your own. Yeah. I had the film that I'm doing now, and one of the reasons it's on hold is because the next scenes are big crowd scenes, and you've just got no chance of doing it with COVID. So... I'm kind of jumping over that one and putting that one on hold. And I've gone through the films I had planned and tried to find the film that I can do in a most COVID safe way. 
So I'm looking at the potential of shooting an entire feature in probably around about seven to nine shooting days. Yeah, is that like a one location? It's two location, mostly three people. Uh, There are a couple of extra people, but mostly it's a very small number of people. So, you know, try and make it COVID safe, makes it easier to shoot, but also it keeps the costs down. Yeah, of course. If most of the film is in a single location, it's much easier to shoot. Yeah, and I think it's a like well, it's, it's a recommended tactic, isn't it? If you read any of those kind of getting into film books, like that's hmm. it's like the go-to. Um, but if you do anything that's more than a single location and only one or two actors, you really need to look at getting as many people involved as you can. Yeah. You know, uh, production assistants, everybody jokes that, you know, they're just there to go and make the coffee, but they're worth their weight when you need stuff moving. You know, if you've got a load of camera equipment to move from one location to another location, it's a bit of a pain doing it on your own. If you've got people to even just help carry boxes, it helps. Yeah, I I think also there's a lot you can get just by asking, like your example of the, the farmhouse location. It's like if you're just knowing people and asking, and you know, sometimes you'll get a yes unexpectedly and it can save a lot of money or make things a lot more convenient. I have had that happen. Um, I just, I just think more in terms of with me, it's like, oh yeah, I could make a film, but like, could I, could I make it? Could I, could I do it properly? And I like, I don't know, like I cut corners. Um, I think with me, it's like, if there's a cheap way to do something, I'll find it, which is good. But sometimes I kind of undercut it too much. <laughs> but there is the, the element of um, working backwards from thinking what you have, you know, if you have a friend who's the security guard for a creepy abandoned mental hospital, write a film about it. Course, you know what I mean? Of course you write a film about it, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, but then, yeah. then, then you get the people who uh, say, um, well, I had this film idea that where I needed a creepy abandoned mental hospital and somebody knows one, but it's not quite the kind of creepy mental hospital I wanted you know what I mean and it's yeah. like you're not going to make it perfect you're not going to get exactly the thing you're it's after like, so you have yeah, to yeah use what you have yeah um, so is, is your day job in any way related to this or is it just like something that you do for the money and then live at night <laughs> I if ever I do one of those tests to say are you left brained or right brained I always come out right down the middle right so it's kind of neither on the technical side or on the artistic side, and it tends to be a mixture of both. My day job is actually working in IT. Okay. And I've worked in IT for a very long time, so I'm used to picking up a manual and learning how something works really quickly. Um, a few years ago, when I decided to get involved in filmmaking, it was kind of an extension of photography, because I was quite into photography, because that was the thing I did from an artistic point of view, hadn't been involved so much in photography for a while and then kind of got involved in filmmaking because I was quite into films. But I know a lot of people who are either involved in films on a very artistic level or involved in films on a very technical level. And I'm one of the few people I know who do both. I don't know many people who are both a director of photography and a writer, for instance. You know, the directors of photography normally want somebody there telling them what it is that they want to put in front of the camera. Whereas the writers wouldn't have a clue about setting up a camera. Yeah, I think I can relate to that. And I know quite a few people who are similar in that. I think, I don't know, like a lot of people were trying to be filmmakers when it was just all down to them. So it's like, you know, you learn to edit, you learn to write and you learn things about photography and 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 i guess suppose videography whatever you call it um so it, yeah and sound is obviously the other big one mm. um well really sound is the big one it's one everybody forgets yeah people but, are really forgiving of bad picture but they do not forgive bad sound and yet people so, obsess over, oh, I've got to have the latest 4K camera with whatever codex flavor of the month. And it's like, no, you don't. You need something that people can sit and stomach to watch. <laughs> um, have you heard of um, a film called Tangerine? No. 
um, I'm trying to remember the writer's name, I think it was Sean Baker. He decided to make this film and he shot it on an iPhone 5. Now, there was a genuine reason why he shot it on an iPhone 5. He wasn't just trying to be clever. Um, the reason was that he couldn't afford to lock down locations. So what he couldn't do is take a big movie camera around at night because people would wonder what he was because doing. People can tell what you're doing, yeah. So a lot of the scenes he shot with just a little iPhone on a tiny little handheld study cam. Because you could be wandering down the street filming somebody talking and nobody was going to bat an eyelid. Nobody's going to know that you're making a film. Yep. But I've... he hired a professional sound guy who brought £50,000 worth of sound equipment because he knew that if he had a good story and good sound, even if the picture was a little bit ropey, he still had a chance of selling it. And he got full cinema release in the States and in the UK, I think, as well. Yeah, I think uh, I heard another one like Soderbergh did a film on an iPhone recently. I've not, I don't know what that's called, but I did hear about it. It's, it's, it's true, though, and I agree with what you're saying, especially this idea of um, kind of guerrilla filmmaking if you're not allowed in locations or if you just don't want people staring at you going like, oh, what's he doing? You're making a film? Because people do do that sometimes if you're going around with a big camera, they'll come up to you and start asking questions and what have you. And I've, uh, I've been close to slapping first ladies before when you have a little <laughs> and they shout, action! And everybody looks around, it's like, don't shout action! We yeah. don't want people to know we're making a film. Exactly. I mean, I've, um, I film with a, now with a Sony FS5 but I did the list, the uh, remember, remember on a A6300, which is a little compact camera. Yeah. It's two little lenses, but it's a small mirrorless. Yeah. I've done stuff now with that on a gimbal um, and on a Ronin uh, S. And you can walk down the street and people don't back. A lot of people now that have a little uh, gimbal for an iPhone. So it's not unusual. You don't get people looking around saying, oh, look what's that person doing. You know, it's surprising what you can get away with now filming because the equipment is just so small. Yeah. You know, you get a small mirrorless camera, stick it on a little single stick uh, gimbal like a Ronin S, and you can wander around and people don't even realize you're making a film. If you invest a little bit more in sound or rent the equipment, you can stick radio mics on a couple of people. You know, you can follow them down the street and you get decent sound. Have somebody walking behind with a sound bag you know, it doesn't look like a soundbag. They can be doing the sound. They can be doing the mixing. You've got the camera. Um, you can even hand off um, focusing to somebody. I mean, with the Sony cameras, the autofocus is not too bad anyway. You've got wide-angle lens. You get away with it in bright light because the depth of field will be so wide. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, these days you can film a lot of stuff and it doesn't look like you're making a film. And I think there's a bit of an obsession with this shallow depth of field as well in like fil low filmmaking because it looks filmic. But there's definitely a place for, if, if you've got enough light, there's definitely a place for using a small sensor, sensor and having everything in focus because it just makes life so much easier. Mm. As um, I say, if you're wandering around with a gimbal, it's, um, you're, not, you're not even bothering to focus. So how long have you, I mean, you say you were doing photography stuff before. So like, when did you think, right, I want to try and make some films? Like, how long have you been doing it? I first had the idea of making films probably earlier than I actually started. Uh, I mean, from the point of view of being into films, I suppose the big one was um, 1977. I don't know if you remember oh, what happened. In, I was there, um, opening day, sat in the stalls watching it that's what got me much more into films than I ever was before then. Cause that's the first big film I remember going to see. Presumably you would have been tiny at the time. Um, not that tiny. Um, what was it? 77. I was nine. Right. Now I saw Star Wars in 77 and then roll on to 94. You remember what happened in 94? 93 is Jurassic Park. I don't know what 94 is. What's 94? Clerks. Cl oh, Kevin Smith. Is that, yeah, yeah, of course. Now I saw Clerks and that was the film that I watched and suddenly thought, I could make a film. <laughs> it doesn't look that hard. 
uh, the, the amount of equipment you need doesn't seem like it's that great. You just need a good idea. Now, at the time, I did remember, I do remember considering, you know, starting to price up film cameras, but shooting on film was still expensive then. Um, shooting on video quality wasn't really so good. But then from 94 onwards, um, digital cameras started to come out. And as digital cameras came out, you got more and more um, video cameras coming out and the quality got better and better and better. Yeah, I remember this. There was about four different formats at the time. We had VHS-C and then we had Hi-8 and then the Mini-DV was the one that kind of had the new revolution with people like, was it Richard Linklater made a film using it as well, even though he'd already done some of yeah. stuff. And, yeah. Well, um, the... And tw uh, 28, 28 Days Later was filmed on Mini-DV. It's not, it's not, if you get the Blu-ray, it's not in HD because it just wasn't filmed that way. Yep, yep. A lot of stuff around then was filmed on remarkably low-end equipment. I mean, um, the Star Wars episode, um, which one was it? Episode, episode four? Episode two onwards was all digital. Yeah, but the what I was going to say was the um, the first cameras they were using were um, just full HD, you know, no 4K or anything. And people don't notice, you know. I'm sure there's people going out and buying it on Blu-ray, not realizing that the reason it's not in 4K was it was never filmed in 4K. Mm. You know, they never had something that they could easily scale up. But what I was going to say was the '94 was when I first moved to Leeds, and it was also the first year I went to the Leeds Film Festival, and from 94 onwards, I've been to the Leeds Film Festival practically every single year. Although for the last couple of years, it's been awkward because it clashes with the American film market, which I also go to. And they're on at the same time, which is a little Do bit- You have to go anyway. to the States for that? Like this. Yeah. American film markets in um, Santa Monica. And so do you go to be there or do you go trying to sell your shorts? Like what's, tell me what goes on there. Cause I don't, I don't really know about it. The American film market is the biggest uh, film market basically in the world. Um, you've got around 700 companies there and they take over a quite a large hotel for two weeks. And for the week of the actual convention, they take all of the furniture out of the hotel and every room in the hotel becomes an office for a distributor, for a production company, um, for film offices for various countries and you can spend the whole week just going around all of those offices talking to people. I went in 2018 and basically found a distributor for Remember Remember. Wow. So we signed the contract end of 2018. They did a minimal amount of post-production to try and get it onto TV end of 2019. But as I say, they didn't quite make it and um, they're now going through a larger round of post-production, more VFX and things, trying to get the perceived budget up when having another go this year. So what did you take with you? Just the trailer you made that you guys had cut yourselves? Or like, what was your kind of package for getting a distributor for that? Um, I took our poster, the log line, and the trailer. And I emailed the trailer to around 100 different companies. Um, talked to several on the phone, uh, arranged interviews with two, and uh, picked one. Nice. And I, feel, I feel like I'm just getting lots of tips here. This is good. <laughs> I basically managed to sell the film just on the um, just on the trailer. We just made a good trailer, and they liked the trailer. So let's go back to your story a bit then. So it was 94, Clerks, you thought, I can do this. So then yep. when did you start doing it? Well, it went through to 2012. I actually wrote a short script. That was the first time I sat down and actually wrote something and thought, I'm going to try and get a film into a film festival. So this had been eating away at you for, I guess, nearly 20 years. Yeah. Wow. So I wrote a short film thought if I shoot this I've got a chance of getting something into a film festival I I do go to a lot of the short film festivals in um, within the Ameri um, 
within the Leeds Film Festival. I go to all the short film shows because if you're going to watch six films in a row, even if one's not that good, it's only it's over in 10, 15 minutes and you're on to the next one. So they are very good from a point of view of picking up tips, how to tell a story in a short amount of time, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And again, you're watching short films with other people. You know, you can tell which films did well, which films didn't do well, you know, just by the audience reaction. So it does help kind of market research. Um, but 2012, I wrote a short film and Bizarrely enough, I haven't actually made that film yet. <laughs> so, what was the I've first made, one? What was the first one that you made? First one, I'm. Oh, you got me thinking now, because I've, I've probably got about forty that I've done last time I counted. Um, you got me thinking now. Which one's the first one I uploaded? Well, I guess one of the first few, if you can't remember exactly. Well, I think what happened was. Um, 2012, I wrote a short film, but then didn't do much about it until around about 2015. 2015, I went to um, Raindance, you know, the London Film Festival. Raindance is a film festival, but it's also um, an organisation that helps people make films. And they do training courses. So I went on a training course at Raindance, like a five-day crash course in how to make films. You had a day on directing, you had a day on budgeting, you had a day on um, cinematography. Um, it's a bit of a pain going all the way down to London for a, an evening class and then get the last train back up to Leeds. But I managed it, I managed to do all five days. And while I was there... I going backwards and forwards? Yeah, because it's once a week. It was once a week on a uh, right, okay. midweek. Yeah. So took five afternoons off in a row uh, each week, got on the train, went down to London, did the course, got the last train back up to Leeds, um, back in work the next morning. Um, I met a few people there and kept in touch with them because they also wanted to make some short films. Now, at the time, I did have a camera, but I didn't have a decent microphone. So I went out and got a decent microphone and we arranged to, for me to go down to London for a weekend and we would try and make each person's short film. So in a two-day period in London, two whole days, the weekend, we made seven short films. Oh, that's incredible. How many of you were involved? Um, probably around about... Eight or nine people. So is this people you met on the course and you all just kind of decided to do this together? Um, a few of the people were from the course and a few of them also had other friends that were interested. Now, of those films, um, I've had five of them shown at Showroom Shorts. Wow. So they were really, really bad films. <laughs> but some of them were monologues, improvised, some of them were written from scripts. Some of them had maybe just two characters. Some of them were written on the fly, as in we had this idea for a short film and we basically just keep write, kept writing the next scene as we were filming it. Yeah. Um, one of mine was the most complicated because I had uh, three locations. So we went out into the park to, to film and three characters and an actual script. But as I say, some of the people's were like a two minute monologue in front of a camera. But yeah, we did um, seven, seven short films in two days. And that kicked off the uh, Facebook page and the YouTube channel. I stuck those on the YouTube channel and then started going around Leeds trying to find who was interested in making films. Which YouTube channel is this? Uh, Obverse Films. Is that your... That's my of... company. Yeah. We've also got other things like... Um, there are new ways of trying to make money from your films. There's things like uh, Quibi, which is a new um, American company. And what they're doing is um, they're releasing series where the episodes are only around about seven to 10 minutes each. And the target they're going after is the typical people that sit on a bus watching videos on YouTube. Yeah. 
you know it's like um the length of your commute well if a new episode comes out once a week of a 10 minute series and they get hooked on it then they'll watch it yeah now the interesting thing with quibi is whereas if you take your film to um say like uh, netflix they will buy you out completely they will not leave you owning your film or having any rights in your film. They will buy you out completely. Um, so the money you make from Netflix is the last money you'll ever make from that film. Yeah. With Quibi, it's the complete opposite. They will take your film on for a period of time. I think, I don't know if it's one year. And after that year is up, you get the entire rights to your film back. So as I say, the American film market's coming up again. Um, it's significantly cheaper to go to because it's um, it's all online. I really don't know what it's going to be like, though, because, as I say, part of it is the networking, and you're just not going to be able to do that. So I'll... But when, um, you, when you actually go there in person, do you just, like, chance it, like, buy a flight, go there and just start talking to people, or do you need some sort of... Is there some sort of gatekeeper? There are gatekeepers to the larger production companies. You know, you you can't just walk into somebody's office and say, oh, I've got this great film. I want to sell it to somebody. Give me money. Um, you've got somebody who will take your details and pass it on to somebody. Um, your target is to try and get that initial 10-minute chat. Uh, if you can get that first 10-minute chat with somebody, then if they're interested, they'll call you back and they'll have a, uh, a longer chat afterwards. I mean, I, I've been twice... And I met people the second time who I'd met the first time, you know, so it's quite interesting if you keep going because you start to know people. That makes it a little bit easier as well. And then I suppose people um, will cut, sort of see you again and then that will kind of yeah. add to your, like, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like plausibility, believe, like your recognition. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the time I went the second year, I didn't really have as much to take. Um, because um, the stuff I was filming wasn't quite in a complete state. Took a few, couple of trailers, but it wasn't quite as easy to, to get into people. Um, really, you want something that's ready to go, you know, like a complete script or a complete film. But selling films is not easy because if you're below a certain threshold on the budget, then they're just not interested. You see, say you're selling a film to Channel 4, there are no tickets. They're not going to sell the, the film and sell a number of tickets to people. They're just buying the film off you to show at a certain time. So they're buying the film for a fixed price. Yeah. And that fixed price will be dependent on what they think your film costs to make. They won't come out and say, what was your budget? But they'll look at your film and say, what does it look like the budget was on this film? So the more expensive you can make your film look, the more money you're going to raise if it's going into um, TV markets. And the easiest way to make your film look like it was more expensive is to spend more money. Yeah. Now, if, if you're a financier and you think, right, well, I can put money into this £50,000 film and this £50,000 film and this £50,000 film, and they can go off and they can spend three months making films. I'm going to have three £50,000 films. And if we manage to sell them for £150,000 each, I've made a certain profit. But if that person's got a lot of money, why would they not put £5 million into three films? £5 million a piece. Because the amount of money they're going to make over that three months is going to be significantly more. You know, it takes the same amount of time to make the film, but the film has a much higher budget. If it has a higher budget, it'll sell for more money. If it sells for more money, they make more profit. Is there not more risk if it doesn't sell, obviously, if you've got a higher... There is more risk well. if it doesn't sell, but if they are careful in how they pick the films. At the end of the day, it's venture capitalism. You know, mm. some will fail, some will work. I think the thing that I always kind of have in the back of my mind about how to get a film sold is this idea that you pay someone famous to work on it for a day and split their scenes into various places. You know, like yeah, you can do that. I'm doing like if I've, you pay if you pay Sean Bean or someone who's at some point going to be in Yorkshire anyway. <laughs> like, yeah. 
I mean, I've, I've got that planned for another film. It was going to be the film I was going to do next, but I've kind of skipped over the films to yeah. do one that's going to be COVID possible. But that's an idea I've got for mine. Get somebody famous, get them in to do a short scene, but try to get as much out of them as you can. You know, yeah. get them on the poster. Name recognition goes a long way. If they can, if your film has a poster with a name that people recognise on, people are more likely to watch the film. Yeah. And I think you know, the, TV, the TV channels will put a film on if they think there's an audience for it. But if there isn't an audience for it, then why would they put the film on? The reason the distributor thinks we've got a chance with the film that we're putting on is because it's tied in with uh, November the 5th. You know, people are watching TV on November the 5th and think, oh, look, there's a film about Guy Fawkes. And this, this is That's so true. Movie. Like, I do think that there's obvious things that I know, but I've never capitalised on. Like, you, you know, so one way of getting recognition is to use a famous actor, but you can also use famous ideas. And there's that much stuff that's in the public domain now that if you want to make a Sherlock Holmes film, you can, because that's yeah. not longer protected. Or, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, you can just use most of those stories, you know, all these kind of all like historical things that do, yeah. that are based on things that actually happened, you can use. Or um, well, you see all these like low budget um sort of sci-fi action movies with dinosaurs in because dinosaurs sell like and the dinosaurs yeah. always look crap but people still buy it just because there's a market um yeah. and it's like i don't know why i don't capitalize on this i'm like oh i need to be an artist i need to do that and it's like it's completely not true you need to do something that people will pick up a three quid dvd in Asda and go oh yeah great <laughs> if this works and i start making money making films I'm probably going to alternate between films that will make money and films that I want to make. Yeah. And it would be nice to think that the films that I actually want to make will eventually get good enough that people will want to watch them anyway. Even though there's no famous actor in there, there's no um, obvious tie into any existing storyline, you know, no existing mythology, yeah. no existing historic character. But, but I think you have to... Uh, times just think well if you're going to ever make more than one film you have to make something that makes money yeah and i think this is a, a battle that exists at all levels because it's like there's a difference between trying to win best picture and trying to get the biggest box office that year those are never going to be the same film because hmm. because there's there's kind of populist entertainment things that people go to be wowed and to laugh and enjoy themselves and come out with a bit of a buzz and then there's films that people want to be like emotionally touched or like have like deep in thought about. And there's, there's definitely films that cross over into both, but I think it's sort of, is this art or entertainment? Mm. And I think it's the entertainment that makes the money and the art that earns you respect. It's yeah, it's, I don't know. <laughs> mm. Yeah. The proper way of making a film, the official way, is that you start with your audience. You know, you work out what your audience wants and then you make that. The artistic way of making films is to make the film that you've always wanted to make yourself. And if you can find an audience, great. But you're making the film for yourself. I think I'm always thinking, like, what is that magic nugget where you get everyone? You know, if you, <laughs> if you, if you make the matrix and then it just works for pretty much anyone you know because it kind of ticks ticks the oh that was nice that was a cool thing and oh that really made me think <laughs> you know um yeah or just like so something like star wars it's just it is a kid's movie but it just works yeah well the reason it works is um george lucas did the clever thing of um getting the rights to the toys mm-hmm because at the time when he made it, there wasn't, there wasn't a thing called merchandising. Nobody made toys to go along with the film. Yeah. He got the rights to the toys and he's made, I think the last count I heard was $5.1 billion just off mm. the toys. But what he also did, which was more interesting, is he invested in the production side of making films. Yeah, because The Empire Strikes Back was the highest budget independent film because he used all of his Star Wars toy money to fund the sequel. 
and then kept yeah. all the profit. But remember, he started um, Skywalker Sound. And uh, ILM. <laughs> yeah, like no. Magic. Very good businessman, whatever you think of him as a dialogue uh, writer. <laughs> but that's how he made his money. He made his money not from the films. He made his money from yeah. the stuff around the films. Yeah. Um, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson started um, Weta Digital, you know, doing special effects. Yeah. He started the company that made the special effects for The Lord of the Rings. But that company now makes money making the special effects for other films. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I started um, Obverse Film Services, because one way to make money is to help other people make their films, because then you're not invested in whether the film makes a profit. Cool. Agreed. I suppose we should start tying this up. Is there any other stuff you want to promote or any, anything you want to say that you've not? Um, well, I would say if people want to go to the Remember Remember page, definitely. Uh, Facebook.com slash Remember Remember Movie. Um, if they want to look at the next one, Facebook.com slash The Odyssey Movie. Um, I've not actually created a public page for the one I'm doing now, which I really need to do. Um, let's have a quick look. Um, the next one I'm doing is going to be a kind of a psychological thriller. Um, I like those. I would say if you keep an eye on the Obverse Films page, facebook.com slash Obverse Films, in the next few days, you'll see a new page go up for what is now going to be the next film. Because um, the Odyssey is having to be on hold, we're going to shoot this one next. On top of that, I'm doing a film called The Blade, which is a short film, but we are looking at turning it into a feature. Um, If you go, I do everything on Facebook. Don't, don't bother with web pages. I think a lot of businesses do that now as well. Yeah. If you go on um, facebook.com uh, slash the blade movie, it's set in the English Civil War. It's just towards the end of the English Civil War. And it's about a skirmish on the edge of a battlefield. The people from one side chasing somebody from the other side. So we're doing a short film. Um, I've We've finished filming and I'm doing post-production now. So that hopefully should be out not too long. I'm hoping to get that finished in time for the American film market this year because we're going to be using that as a proof of concept for the feature. So hopefully we'll be working on the feature next year. That's the main thing I'm editing now. Um, I've got another two shorts which I'm still in post-production on, which I filmed recently. Um, also, with um, DAG Productions, DAG, I've been helping them. Uh, they've got a Dick Turpin film they're working on, which I'm on board as director. And they've got a TV series they're working on, The Swords of Scavalia, which I'm on as director as well. So, good, I'm good, good very stuff. busy. <laughs> no, it's good talking to you. I think what I've got from you is kind of this idea of how to make things commercial and like thinking more about it as a business which i don't do enough for myself i think i'll talk to you anyway and hopefully some of the stuff we've said has been interesting to listen to i'll skim over it and make sure we haven't accidentally told people our bank details and cut out some of those parts okay then <laughs> cheers appreciate it i'll follow all your web pages and talk to you soon <laughs> yeah send us a link when it's um when it's ready to be watched okay cool mate